Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast on life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. This week's conversation is with Patina Gappa, a writer and international lawyer from Zimbabwe. You might recall from our earlier conversations with Chivo Dendere recommendations to read Gappa's award-winning book, The Book of Memory, as well as two collections of short stories, Elegy for Easterly and Rotten Row. Thanks to Chipo's efforts, Patina visited the five colleges earlier this year, and we had a chance to sit down and talk. Our conversation begins with Patina talking about a historical novel she wrote that will be published later this year. In the novel, she imagines the journey of the companions of missionary David Livingstone in returning his body to Great Britain following his death in what is today Zambia. You know, the, the reason I, I was so fascinated to hear that you, you specialize in Malawi is because Malawi is a special interest of mine mm. because of not only David Livingstone's travels there, but also because Jacob Wainwright, who is the subject of my novel, mm. is a freed slave from Yao. You know, he was a Yao slave, and oh. he was the man who accompanied David Livingstone's body to England. Yeah, he was one of the 69 companions who were with Livingston when he died. So I've been researching that story for more than 20 years. I first came across it when I was 16, like every child who does African history. Yeah. I learned about Chuma and Susie, Livingston's companions, who carried his body for nine months from north of Zambia to, to, to Bagamoyo on the east coast of Africa and then from there to Zanzibar, and then from there Dave, uh, Jacob Wainwright took the body to England. So I've, I was always fascinated by that story because I wanted to find out why they did it. Right. Because he could have been easily buried, buried. where he died. Yeah. His, his wife, um, Mary Livingstone, is, is buried in uh, Shupanga, you know, on, on, on Zambezi, yeah. in what is now Mozambique. So I always wondered, why did they do it? And I thought, well, I can't be uh, a historian, I'm not a historian, I can't investigate yeah. this as a historian because there's simply no, no, no record uh, that would explain why they did it. But as a novelist, I can use the tools of the imagination to try and enter into their minds yes. to explain why they did it and to sort of imagine what the journey must have been like for them. So that's what I've been writing and now the book is going to be published next year. I'm very excited, my first historical novel. But I'm just completely fascinated by the men and the women, there were also women in the party, 69 mm-hmm. of them. And they came from a whole range of Afri- what are now African countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a large contingent from Malawi, mm-hmm. a large contingent from Mozambique. Mm-hmm. I've inserted one Zimbabwean. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's the villain. Of course. <laughs> I could not leave a Zimbabwean. <laughs> um, and there's a whole group of men from Zanzibar and from Lamu. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from that, that whole island... Um, Archipelago. Archipelago, yes. Um, And what is really fascinating to me is that without these men who accompanied Livingston, who accompanied Stanley, who accompanied Mungo Park, who accompanied Burton, who accompanied Speak, Victorian exploration in Africa would not have been possible. Right. It wouldn't have been possible. Because these are the men who charted, you know, the, the, the paths, they spoke the languages, they carried the packages, they cooked the food... You know, so I'm really fascinated as well by these men as explorers mm-hmm. because I consider them to be explorers right. and not just companions. Yeah. So then, um, maybe just a preview for your book. I, so as you're as you're talking about um, 
imagining why these men carried Livingstone's body so far and for so long. I mean, one can imagine a number of reasons why. Oh, yes. Right? Um, and, that, and that they would even have competing reasons. Absolutely. That's, you could be writing this novel. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I've come up with about five reasons, I think. But how do you pick? Well, luckily for me, there are 69 of them. <laughs> there are about 69 men and women. So each, each has a different motivation. Mm -hmm. Some do it for pure, um, you know, profit. They right. think that, you know, if we take the Buana's body back to the coast, we're going to get money for it. Yeah. Others think, well, if we don't take him back, we're going to be blamed for his death. So there's exactly. a fear motivation as well. And... Some of them, who, the, especially Susie and Chuma, who traveled with him for the longest period, uh, James Chuma was rescued by Livingston when he was just 15 years old. And he spent 15 years in Livingston's service. Mm. So for him, it would have been love, really. I mean, yeah. like, just... I wouldn't say total devotion, because he did desert him at one point. Right. But I would certainly say that there was a lot of respect. Yeah. And I think for some of them as well, especially the ones who knew what he was doing when he died, which was to look for the source of the Nile, there would have been a curiosity to it. You know, they of wanted course. to pass on his work, because one of the really interesting things they did is that they brought back all his papers. All his papers. Mm -hmm. And what's really fascinating and also terribly sad is that what they called his last great discovery... Mm -hmm. was the Lualaba River. And actually, it was Livingston who discovered that the Lualaba was connected to the Congo. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Congo was the river of colonization. Yes. So there's also that, you know, terrible fact that yeah. they actually brought out of Africa the means to colonize Africa without knowing it. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's just, it's, it's just a story with just so many incredible layers. Mm -hmm. And But for me, the most incredible discovery was that one of the people who accompanied the body for this, uh, on this nine-month journey was a woman called Halima, who was Livingstone's cook. So I managed to find a woman, and a very interesting woman, mm -hmm. to, to center part of the story around. So mm -hmm. my two main characters are this woman, Halima, and also Jacob Wainwright, who was um, a free Diawa slave. He had mm -hmm. been rescued um, from the waters just outside Mozambique when he was a boy mm -hmm. and taken to a school in India. Mm -hmm. Because by then, I'm sure you understand that, by then the, the British had abolished the slave trade, right? right? So they would send gunboats to patrol the east coast of Africa to rescue mm -hmm. slaves. But wh what would they do with them? Right. Where did they take them? Goa, I guess. They, do, they don't know where home is, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't know where home was. So they would yeah. take them to India. Yeah. And there was a school that they established there at, at Nasik, mm -hmm. uh, near the Principality of Bombay, where they educated these young boys in English, Christianity, mm. um, taught them Western dress, taught them to draw maps. And these boys eventually went back to Africa with the explorers. Mm. So it's, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible story. And, and there's so many layers, as I said before, and there's so many synergies and so many connections. And that's... Um how do you think that's different from um, a novel that isn't historical fiction, right? So your your first novel was The Book of Memory. Yes. Right? Um, how would you compare writing um, that novel, right, that's set in the contemporary period with uh, writing this, this next yeah. novel that's coming out soon? That's actually going to be the subject of my talk tonight, oh, a, a okay. little bit. I'll, I'll touch a little bit on it because... I found it easier to write the historical novel. Huh. It was harder because of the research involved, and of it was course. hard to enter into the mindset of the times, and also to try not to judge the times. That's the, yeah. that's the hardest thing with the historical novel. 
novels. So, for instance, I wanted a woman character, mm-hmm. but she couldn't be a feminist because it's simply not possible that a, right. a slave woman in Victorian Africa, you know, pre-colonial Africa, was a feminist in, in the sense that we understand it to be today. But So things like that. So I had to let go of my own judgments and mm-hmm. not judge the times too harshly. So, for instance, slavery was an accepted fact, right. you know, much as abhorrent as it is. For the people in that time, it was their reality. So I had to reflect that reality. But at the same time, it was easier to write because it's not as contested a space as Zimbabwe is, mm. right? So, because I have found that one of the hardest things about being a Zimbabwean writer is seemingly taking sides. Mm. And how you take sides mm. depends on where you're standing politically. Right. And there are so many shades of truth, right. so many shades of reality, right. so, mu- so many different understandings of what is justice, right. you know, so which is what I'm, I'm going to talk about today. So I have never felt more attacked or more supported than when I've been writing about Zimbabwe. Ah. You know? <laughs> so I have, I have a group of people who really like my work and think that, yes, Bettina is telling the truth. Yeah. And then I have others who say, no, she's reflecting uh, a very biased idea of the truth. You know? So it's this idea of the contested space that I have found really difficult uh, dealing with as, as a writer about Zimbabwe. So I could, I could see... Um, as you're saying this, I could imagine, for example, the first short story that opens um, your collection of short stories, uh, An Elegy for Easterly, um, where it's about a woman and, and there's a funeral, and, and it really is a lot about national politics and Zim. And I, I could see people from all sides hating you. Absolutely. You know, it's one of those. <laughs> but, um, I mean, the thing is, is I love that short story. I think, and I assign it in my classes because I feel like it gets at so many of the layers of um, politics and intrigue. And I think particularly at the time that that short story was written, right, this is a time where, you know, there's a strong clampdown on the media in Zimbabwe. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's very difficult to, to, to write nonfiction about um, Zimbabwean politics, especially at the elite levels. Mm. And so mm. it's important to me, you know, as someone who studies African politics, but more importantly, someone who teaches African politics, to be able to say, you know, even in places where things are difficult, where, um, you know, there's not uh, good media reporting mm. um, or um, good, you know, rigorous social science research, because there are constraints against those things, mm. there's always fiction, mm. right? Mm. And fiction, even if it's fiction, mm. it doesn't mean it's not also displaying the everyday realities Absolutely. of what people are going through. And I, I felt that a lot in, yeah. in the, the short stories Oh, it's, in it's so kind of you to say that, because um, I don't know if you've read my most recent collection, Rotten Row, but I did, one of the ways in which I tried to work around you know, the contestation of the space is to imagine myself as somebody that I don't agree with, somebody mm. whose politics I don't agree with, mm-hmm. because that's also my way of trying to, to get the, at, at the, what I call the roundness of things. I also mm. try to see things from the other perspective, even though I don't always agree with it. So in that, sh- in that story, I look at Zimbabwe, you know, most recent history through the eyes of a political widow, Mm-hmm. A widow who is part of the system, right? And I try to do something similar in a story called "The Dropper" in Rotten Row, mm-hmm. which is to look at the death penalty, which I I bore absolutely, and I and I absolutely hope we we come to abolish the death penalty. But I, I looked at it through the eyes of a hangman, 
somebody who actually administers the death penalty. Right. Because I wanted to, to understand what it might be like from that perspective. Right. You, know? you abolish so, the death penalty, he's out of a job. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, as it happens, he does give it up for, 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 for other reasons to do with trauma and so on. But, you know, I, I always try to, to get around this space, this contested space, by also trying to approach things from... from from, from the other side. So I, I really love that story and I'm so glad that you talked about it because it allowed me to look at um, this ZANU-PF, the ruling party, from yeah. inside. Yeah. You know? Um, and and it's, a very, it's a very odd place, Zimbabwe, because um, we are all very nice people, Zimbabweans. We're all very pleasant to mm. each other. You know, the... You can have perfectly good relationships with people across the political divide. You know, it's only when it comes to politics mm. that the, 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 the boundaries and, and, and the differences assert themselves. Yeah. So yeah, uh, what I'm interested in, I'm interested in the humanity of people. Mm. I'm interested in the humanity of everyone, mm. even the, the people who might be considered monsters. I could see that, especially in the Book of Memory. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the guards who are guarding the women right you can you can tell that he, you know even people that you would you would imagine as villains right you you can't right you kai's mother who um who memory goes you know on this she's she's unclear what she's doing where she's loveness. walking to right <laughs> and i had to call it loveness it's such a Zimbabwean name <laughs> it is it is right um you know Loveness, this prison guard, is hmm. taking memory, this prisoner who's on death row, you know, outside of the prison and into the real world and into her home and offering mm. her a Coke and, mm. you and know, books, right? <laughs> books, you know, which, you know, there's, you know, and even television, right? Oh. Nigerian movies, memory is, has not seen any of these things. And, and, um, and, and she's acting human mm. to this, to this prisoner, uh, and you know, and she's got reasons for it, right? But but you see her differently when she's in her home as a mother than when she's as a guard. But that also softens her as a guard. You've just given me a great insight. One aspect mm. I hadn't really thought about. She takes an incredible risk, doesn't she? Because mm. for all she knows, memory could be guilty of the crime for which she's in prison. Right. And yet she's taking this convicted murderer, murderess, into her home. To be and with her child. To be with her child, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, that's a really interesting insight. I haven't read this book in more than three years or so, so <laughs> I'd forgotten some of the details. But you're it's absolutely right. It's one of those right, books yeah. that you can reread. So even if you haven't visited I, it, I, I, I wish it was one of those books you could rewrite. <laughs> there are quite a few things I'd like to rewrite. But you're absolutely right in that um, I wanted even the prison guards to be human. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I, I don't think I can ever write a monster. I, mm. I don't know. Maybe if um, Stephen King were to ask me to <laughs> to write as him for one year or whatever, but honestly, I, I don't think I can. I can see only the bad in in any one character right. that I invent. Yeah, but I think that that's humanity, right? That like the things that we do that are bad, they may not come from a pure. A, a pure evil, right? Like they, they, they're they're compromises that we're making in our lives, and I think that that's one of the things um, about your writing that, that that at least I take from your writing that mm. right that 
you know, here's this, here's this villain or this person that we think of as a villain, but really, if you just kind of look at what their lives are really like, you're seeing that they're they're making compromises with the la- with the hand that they've been dealt. Absolutely, and and one of my, my the strongest influences, which I'm sure is clear from the Book of Memory, I'm very influenced by Greek tragedy. Mm. I'm very influenced by the idea of the inexorability of fate. That that mm. there are things that you can't escape, and also the idea that some things happen because of a flaw in you as a mm. person. You know mm-hmm. that. It, it is the flaw, whether it's hubris or whatever it is, that creates the tragedy in your life and not necessarily the fact that you're a monster or you're a villain, you know. It's a, it's a kind of a frailty that you carry within you that determines some of the things that happen to you. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask, you're a lawyer by training and yes. by vocation. Yes. So what, what, what drew you then, then to also be a writer? That's also something I'm going to talk about a little bit today, but I always wanted to be a writer. I think from the time I understood where books come from, mm. from the time I understood that there's a conscious person behind, mm. behind the stories I loved as a child, I wanted to recreate, you know, for, for other readers, that sensation of falling into a world that is completely imagined. So I would say from, from the, the age of about 10 or 11, I started writing my own stories. Mm. Uh, I wrote books. I wrote um, a story set on the planet Mars. I wrote, you know, and I used to draw because I, I draw as well. So I used to illustrate my own books and I used to write poetry, uh, imitating Ogden Nash and Hilaire Belloc, you know, that kind of nonsense poetry. Um, <laughs> then I was the first child in my family across all generations to go to university. Mm. And so the idea of studying English or history, which is what I wanted to study, so that I could eventually write or be a journalist. That's ridiculous. Which yeah. was ridiculous for my parents <laughs> and for my teachers. And, and yeah. because I like to argue, I like to debate, they said, you're going to do law. Mm. So I went to do law. And I'm very glad I did, mm-hmm. because I think it made me a much more disciplined person and a much mm. more disciplined writer. Mm. But the, the desire to write never went away. So I fell in love with my subject, and mm-hmm. I studied law um, all the way through to PhD level. Mm-hmm. But I always wanted to be a writer. I became a lawyer in Geneva. International trade law is my specialization. And I still never lost the desire to write. Mm. So I've written every year of my life since I was 10. But it's only when I was 36 that I was published. Mm. Because I had a, you know, I had a huge insecurity about about writing. Mm. For instance, I didn't understand until I started reading the Paris Review interviews that... There's such a thing as editing. (laughs) It sounds so obvious. Mm -hmm. But because I would write something and it didn't feel perfect to me and it didn't read as... I would discard it, then go to the next thing and write it and then discard it. I never really actually thought, "Mm, let me revise this, let me go over this. So it was really learning that discipline of editing Mm -hmm. and self-editing that Mm -hmm. made me understand that even Toni Morrison needs to edit herself. (laughs) And I love the Paris Review interviews because... I don't know if you've read them, but you actually get to read what an, a, a manuscript originally looked like before it was edited, and then you get to see all the edits. So it, it really helped me to understand that uh, a story, a novel, is something that is going through different versions. Right, it's yeah. evolving. It's evolving, exactly, yeah. And yeah. that's really, that, that's, that's what gave me the, the confidence to say, well, maybe I don't like this first draft that I've produced. Mm-hmm. Let me maybe work on the second and so on. So the Book of Memory, for instance, it took me 37 drafts to get that right. I think of that as a low number, but... <laughs> it's, 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 it's a low number, but I have to say it was, um, 
It was a particularly difficult novel to write, yeah. but I, I, I really now under, come to understand that I'm the kind of person who needs to constantly review my work. Mm. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about your writing habit. So, I mean, you're a lawyer by day, so are you a writer by night? When do you find time to write? And, and are you one of those people who likes to um, have a, a, a daily habit of writing, or do you like to do binge writing when you're in a place where you're sequestered mm. and you can just focus? Mm. What's, your, what's your writing That's habit That's a really like? good question, actually. Um, I'm no longer a lawyer a full-time lawyer at the moment. I'm not working at the moment. I'm doing a writing fellowship in Berlin, in Germany. Okay. So that has changed my writing habits considerably. But mm-hmm. when I did um, work and write, I used to get up early in the mornings, mm-hmm. sort of around four or five, and then I'd write for a few hours, then I'd go to work, mm-hmm. and then I'd come back and revise what I wrote. That's how I wrote my first book, An Elegy for Easterly, mm-hmm. and that's how I wrote Rotten Row, because I wrote those two when I was working in Geneva. The Book of Memory was a different mess and I think part mm-hmm. of the reason why it took so long is because I didn't really have a structure Yeah. because for the last three years that I spent writing it I left my job to take a sabbatical in Zimbabwe mm. to become a full time writer mm. which didn't work out for me mm. um, so in, 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 in many ways uh, I find that I need to have both sides of my life in balance mm. I need to be doing the law stuff and I need to be doing the writing stuff mm-hmm. and somehow manage to, to find a balance between the two so far, though, in Berlin, I've just been working on the Livingstone novel. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a different kind of process because it's been really immersive. Mm-hmm. And it's, I've had to do a lot of research yeah. and go over my res- this research that I've been accumulating over the last 20 years. So touch wood. There's no wood anywhere in this room. <laughs> <laughs> that has gone uh, considerably well. Um, I'm probably going to move back to Zimbabwe in April mm. to work um, uh, I'll be working full time again right. and okay. I think I need that to, to, to balance out my life because I don't think I, I can ever be the kind of person to be a full time writer, writer. So, and, and the reason why I ask that is because I know that we have listeners who you know they have day jobs mm. but their day jobs don't define who they are and they, they have these creative energies but I'm not sure that they they know how to manage doing both of those things at once Yeah. well I mean first of all I would say whatever you do don't give up your day job yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, because you don't want to be the kind of writer who can only write about writing, or who can only write about writers, or who can only write things set in an academic setting, you know? Yeah. You want to be a writer who can open yourself up to the world. Right. And I think one of the reasons that so few writers manage to write about work well is because so many writers don't actually work. work. Or at least they don't really work outside a very narrow uh, setting. Mm. Um, and by the way, it's very interesting to me that the best writing about work is actually on television and not in novels right. or, or short stories. But right. that's, a, that's an entirely different conversation. But no, what but I would say. That makes sense, that makes sense <laughs> yeah. right? Because if you think about actors and writers, you know, they struggle. Yes. And they have to have day jobs or it's something, they have to have some side hustle that allows them to then every now and then go on auditions or Absolutely. submit manuscripts. But, but I would say the side hustle is a gift. Use it yeah. as a gift. Yeah. And don't. Um, <sighs> Don't, don't see it as second best. Mm. It's just something else that you do. Mm. And find ways to let what it is, your side hustle, whatever it is, mm-hmm. find ways to let that feed into 
the creative impulses, mm-hmm. you know. So one of the things I've done, for instance, um, is I have used my many, many years of working in Geneva mm-hmm. to start a new story collection, which uh, I'm, I'm building slowly over the next year or so, which is going to be set in the world of work. Mm. You know, um, you know all the, all the petty politics oh of, you know, gosh. who gets a promotion. I'm sure right. you understand this from academia, right? Who's getting promoted, who's mm-hmm. getting tenure, who isn't, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. Um, so the, that collection is going to be about work mm-hmm. and work in a very weird context, which is this overly privileged world of the international right. civil service in Geneva. Right. Um, so I have managed to find ways to use those many days that I spent at work to feed into my into my creative side, and you know. So there are different ways you can do that, but I would say that you know, take every opportunity you can to, you know, to, to just bring your many different lives and your many different selves into into the creative side of you. Mm-hmm. So one thing that we like to ask our guests is what they're reading right now or what you've read recently that you would recommend to listeners. Well, recently I've been judging the world's richest short story competition. Oh. <laughs> the Sunday Times EFG short story competition. And there have been some terrific stories yeah. from all over the world. Um, some very strong showings, obviously, from the United States, because I, I don't think that there, there's any group of writers in the world that writes short stories as well as American writers. And I really mean that. I yeah. mean, it, it's partly to do with... Um, you know, MFA, mm-hmm. creative writing, you know, it's, it's much easier to workshop a story than to workshop a novel and so on. Right. So I really wish that short stories got more credit. I really, yes. I, I, I think, got, I wish they got more love from readers, same, you know, because same. I just love short stories. Yeah. Um, and um, so amongst the, the, the writers that we have long listed are people like Miranda July, who's, who's just really brilliant and really talented. Um, and so... What I would encourage people to read is please read more short stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are there any um, are there any particular favorites you have of short stories that have been published in the last I don't know five to ten years that you that you really like? Well, I mean, I, I would I, I, I could or read writers. anything by I, I'll read anything by Juno Diaz. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's absolutely terrific. Uh, Yi Yun Lee is absolutely brilliant, mm-hmm. and I think she's. Um, she, she's a she's a, a student of William Trevor, who uh, a short story writer from from Ireland, who unfortunately passed away last year. And I think she's one of the few pure short story te- telling talents that is in the world. So I really mm. love Yun Lee, and I would read anything by her. Um, I've also been reading uh, Leslie Neka Arima, who's a young Nigerian uh, writer who's, mm-hmm. who's got a brilliant, brilliant uh, short story collection called. What it means when a man falls out of the sky. I mean, I cannot recommend that book enough. Oh, it's wow. just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I love the title. Uh, isn't it great? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much. No, thank you very much. That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. You can listen to Ufamu Africa on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on our website ufamuafrica.com. Find us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Government Department and the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Kawia Aruna, Class of 2021, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production, and music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.